to The Truth in This Art. I am your host, Rob Lee. And today we delve into the world of Asian art. Join us as we explore groundbreaking exhibitions and expertise in the field with an esteemed curator and art historian based in Baltimore. My guest has earned numerous accolades and holds the position of Associate Curator of Asian Art at the Walters Art Museum. Please welcome Donnie Chan. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Rob. Thank you for having me here. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for for making the time. And, um, you know, like you're in your office with the real books behind you and actual real things. I'm in my home office and there are Funko Pops behind me. <laughs> so we're, we're on very different sides of, <laughs> of this sort of Friday conversation where we're doing this. But um, definitely I wanted to to chat and I'm glad we're able to do this. And um, before we get into sort of the main topics of today's conversation, I wanted to like open it up and, you know, give you the space to introduce yourself and maybe share the highlight of your week. I think we don't ask each other that enough, like what's going on in your world? That's great. So if you will. Oh, sure. Um, hi, I'm Donnie Chan, and I serve as the Associate Curator of Asian Art at the Walters Art Museum in Baltimore, Maryland. Um, this is my fourth year working at the Walters. Um, before I came to the Walters, I was actually a curator in San Francisco at the Asian Art Museum. And I was there for a total of 10 years. So right out of grad school and spent 10 years there. And, you know, looking back, I feel like that was a, that, that was where I received like my real world training on how to be a curator. You know, I learned a lot. Yeah. So, and, you know, let's say, this week, I would say the highlight of my week was um, yesterday, I gave a talk at the Women's Club of Roland Park. And, um, you know, one of the most rewarding aspects of my work as a curator is actually when I get these opportunities to give talks or lectures to the public. And so yesterday I gave a talk on the meaning of flowers in Asian art to coincide with their um, garden and art theme. Yeah. And, you know, I've never worked with um, the club before. So it was, it was great to make a new connection. But I also found that the audience there were super engaging. Because in a way, that's, I, I love how people who come to my talks, they're there because they have some sort of interest in what I have to say. Yeah. And so it was really gratifying that we were able to bond over a shared mutual interest of flowers and art. That's, that's great. That's great to have like those, those sort of like finding your people sort of, sort of yeah. situation. Yes, yes, yes. And um, I, I may have added a, a flower question later. See, you give yourself yeah. more work to do. That's, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and, and thank you for that introduction and thank you for the, um, just sort of that highlight. That's, that's really, that's really cool. I mean, if I was interviewing you, let's say again tomorrow, hopefully this is in that highlight conversation. Mm -hmm. Well, that'd be great. <laughs> so, going back a little bit, like the beginning, and I and I know you touched on sort of like that the 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 first art job. You were a little bit ahead. Uh, the first sort of art job, but when did that that passion around art and around like I guess being activated and recognizing like art and creativity begin? When was that for you? I would have to go all the way back to when I was a kid um, in the 1980s. Um, so I, my family and I immigrated to the U.S. in the early 1980s. 
and we settled in Revere, Massachusetts, it was right, right outside of Boston. And there was a large immigrant Cambodian community there during the early 80s. And there was a local video rental shop that rented out episodes of these, um, like these, you know, you know, of K like Korean drama these days. Yeah. Well, this was the uh, Chinese Hong Kong equivalent of that. <laughs> so it was like TV episodes of these his these um shows that were you know loosely based off of Chinese history, myths, and legends. So they wore fantastical like historical costumes. They did, um, you know, they had great fight sequences with Kung Fu and they had powers. They were, you know, they had supernatural dealings with supernatural beings. And so in the 1980s, apparently it was the golden age of that type of costume dramas coming out of Hong Kong. And so every week we would get new episodes that we can rent out and they were dubbed in the Cambodian language. And that was when I fell in love with sort of like ancient China. I thought China was like that, you know, with costumes and sword fighting and magic. And only later I found out that, no, that doesn't exist anymore, except through the, you know, um, historical Chinese art. Yeah. And I have to say, that was when I first fell in love with like Chinese art and culture. That's that's really cool. That's really <laughs> cool. And being able to kind of tap back into like being exposed, you know, I think mm -hmm. there's, you know, with this sort of push of um, highlighting and amplifying like, you know, art and like history from various cultures, it's like, oh, it can kind of spark that interest. And I think that's why the sort of broader conversation around art and around creativity that brings in maybe conversations from from different cultures that weren't getting sort of that same attention as sort of the the classics and the traditional and all of that sort of stuff. The if we're being very honest, the very sort of like white art world yeah. and being able to bring in like, oh, here's your history a little bit. And let's like have folks that are, you know, representative of the culture and can speak of the culture and speak on like the history and give them that sort of space. I think that's very important. Yeah. And I didn't get it through my, um, my schooling because um, there was, you know, the public school system that I went to did not have a strong art program at all. Mm. Like they, we had, you know, a visual arts um thing where we have our teachers who teach you how to paint etc but i have no such skill or aptitude for that um but we had good science teachers and so i actually went to college hoping to be like an astrophysicist so that that was like my uh i had a science major i went in with a science major however after a week or a month there and i finally realized oh my god i can study the Chinese language, I can learn about Asian art history. It was that kind of exposure that I didn't, I didn't know those types of um, learning existed. Yeah. And so I changed my major within that first month you know, to, an, to East Asian studies with the Chinese language minor. That's, that's, that's the impact. Um, yeah. I, I had the experience of going to an HBCU and you know, similar as you were describing like earlier, I wanted to be a uh, comic book artist. I wanted to be an illustrator. And that was what I was into. I spent all of my time doing it. And I was one of those kids that would quickly complete a test 
like rushed through the test, get that B, knew I was good enough to get the B, right? And I was like, I'm going to draw X-Men for the next 15 minutes. That's what I'm drawing. <laughs> and it was a little bit of entrepreneurship thing because I was selling the the, the the pictures I was drawing as well. Nice. <laughs> but um, I'll, I'll say, you know, once I got into maybe senior year, like in high school, I was looking at like, all right, I don't know if there's a lot of, you know, I, I guess actually before going into high school, I think uh, maybe uh, last year, middle school, going into high school, I kind of got this sort of notice of uh, from an art school saying, eh, it's kind of childish and just killed my confidence. And I, I stopped drawing and kind of shifted into more of the creative writing and things of that nature and really didn't know what the direction was going to be. So um, I was looking at either going into engineering, um, specifically robotics, or going into like a business school. So me selling my comics was early me being an entrepreneur. <laughs> uh, but by the time I got to Morgan State University, great you know business program, I chose business as my major, I took an African diaspora class and it just opened me up. Like this is what, 2003, just opened me up like, yeah, let's explore, let's learn more about this. I wasn't quite in that that vein, but definitely it got me very interested. I didn't get into the vein of changing my major, but it opened my mind up, I'll say. Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's see, let's see. So coming coming out of like 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 college and so talk about sort of that that journey. And I know you touched on a little bit like early, but talk about that journey into curation and like sort of this like having the, the the background, imagine the major and all really kind of informed, like this is the direction I want to go. But but talk about that, some of the decisions and some of the mm -hmm. opportunities that that came out of that that um that path. Yeah. So when I yeah, when I first like redeclared or changed my major to East Asian studies, I, you know, I changed it without uh, without an end goal in mind. I remember my family asking me, what are you going to do with that major? You know, <laughs> And so um, my first art job actually was when I was a sophomore in undergrad. So I went to school at, at uh, Colby College in Waterville, Maine. And um, during my sophomore year, I worked as a research assistant for one of my art professors. And what I had to do was just to catalog her, her collection of art slides. Like this was back in the day when professors used a slide projector for their um, art history seminars. And so in that job, I think it was just the process of cataloging each of the slides. It First of all, it forced me to just be exposed to a large quantity of Asian artworks. All, you know, even though they were, I, I was exposed to them through slides and not the actual objects, it was just still one after the other you know, just being exposed. Yeah. And so it was an, an educational experience nonetheless. But I feel like looking back now, I can I can sort of like point to that time as when after after seeing all these gorgeous artworks, and they look gorgeous in the slides, I wanted to actually see them in person. And that's, I feel like that's what distinguishes an art historian from an art curator. Um, as an art curator, I do have the privilege of handling and just spending time with an actual object, like right there in front of me. And, you know, I am, I'm insured to handle <laughs> these precious artworks. Um, art historians, you know, they, 
they don't necessarily get to be with the artworks that they study as often or as easily as a curator does. Like we, we sometimes um, facilitate, you know, scholars visits to see the objects in person, but they, they get like a day or two to spend with the object versus what I can do every day. And so I think that really sort of put me on the path of, okay, what can I do? What, what kind of career would allow me to be with an art object, you know, so regularly and easily. And also that's become one of my primary um, curatorial philosophy, start with the object. So like, what can the object tell you? Where can it lead you to, you know, in what path can it lead you to ask questions? And so start with the object. That's, that's a that's a great great philosophy there is um you know I start to think about like I guess the curation that goes into collecting interviews and so on it's definitely not the same I'll never give myself that but there is an intention that goes into it and I think figuring out where you want to start off at like you're saying start off with the object right and I think with 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 doing this what have you start off with sort of the conversation, which you're, you're aiming to get out of the conversation. It's not like every person with a paintbrush, you know, should yeah. go on. It's, it's like, all right, what is there merit within this conversation? Is there something that can be gained and something that, you know, I can learn? Cause at the end of the day, it's always for me, but <laughs> is there something that could be learned from this? So, um, Thank you. I, I steal from you artists and, and uh, I steal from you artists and you guest types. I steal from you. I steal from all of you. I'm using this to better myself. That's what this is. Uh, so, um, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, let's see. Yeah, but I do have to say that um, what really opened my eyes to the possibility of curation as a career yeah. was, again, Colby College was fantastic. It was for, you know, the first person in my family to go to college. It was the ideal environment to really, you know, hold my hand and sort of offer me exposure to all kinds of things because in sort of like my junior senior year there was a seminar given by um some of the art professors it was called museum exhibition like 101 or something like that and so it was a seminar of like eight students and the goal of the seminar was to launch an exhibition with the college art museum so basically you know from ideation all the way to completion. And so it was an intensive training. You you learn how to come up with an exhibition idea by, you know, going into the storage and figuring out, okay, what objects do we have in this collection? You know, how can what what would be a fascinating show that based on the objects that we have? Then you learn how to write, you know, object labels for them, do research. Um edit a catalog, hang the objects, and then you get the fun part where you have the opening party, you know? <laughs> Very fun. <laughs> yeah, so from that seminar was great in that it solidified for me what I was hoping for was this is an actual career. There are people who get paid to do this and it feels like it's something that I would love to do. And so kudos. I give a great, I, I give much gratitude to that seminar. 
it's, it's great having that that experience. I mean, um, I can I can see it on your face right now. It's, it's, <laughs> we have the you know the listeners don't have the visual, we have this visual right now, and you know having having that opportunity and that sort of realization that this thing that I'm interested in is pursuit that I'm interested in. Mm-hmm. It's like oh, this is how it actually works, and it's like everything starts clicking and everything starts coming together. Like wow, this is amazing. <laughs> yeah. Well, when did it start to click for you? As you know. I don't know. A podcaster. <laughs> uh, I, I'll say, like, you know, years and years and years ago, I've been been doing this for for about about fourteen years, and mm. you know, um, just being, I was one of those guys who was very interested in some of the weird news stories, and that you would hear like in on the radio in the morning, um, and. I would oftentimes be looking up these stories like, well, what's weird that's happening in the world right now? And Mm -hmm. I would look up that stuff and I started hearing it on the radio and it's like, okay, there's a lane for this. And it starts to click. And I found um, a podcast from one of my favorite um, uh, film directors and he started kind of like revealing certain things he used to make a podcast, to do a podcast. And this is way back in 2009. And I was just like, oh, I can actually try this out and really being self-taught, having a few of those like opportunities to chat with people who are um, producers and just to get a better sense of what gear should I get to go along this journey further. But really being self-taught, but getting sort of that, these are two guys having an interesting conversation and I'm captivated. And how can I bring that on? So in doing this particular podcast, I give all the credit to um, one of those sort of turning points. All of the interviews I enjoyed, they're, they're all great. But I'll say, you know, interviewing folks like I did an interview with Rebecca Hoffberger. And that was kind of the one of, oh, oh, I'm I'm decent at this. I'm, I'm pretty I'm pretty good at this. And I was like, I got to keep going, keep trying to, like, go after that sort of magic and being curious. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to shift gears a touch. Um, could we could we talk a bit about across Asia, uh, arts of Asia and the Islamic world? Yes, 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 with pleasure. <laughs> so, so um, yeah, please. Oh, um, so across Asia, arts of Asia of, and the Islamic world, it is our re-envisioning of the Walters collection of Asian and Islamic art. And, um, you know, we considered a landmark installation for us because it is the first time in the museum's history um, whereby we are able to present the present Asian art and Islamic art together in a contiguous physical space. You know, previously we've had these two collections in separate spaces, but we really wanted to put them together in a contiguous space because historically the various cultures across the Asian continent have had periods of interactions and exchanges. And we wanted to make sure that we can tell those stories. And it made total sense then to put them all in on the fourth floor of the museum. And so we opened um, in April, so only a few weeks ago. And visitors will find that, you know, on display like over 500 objects representing the cultures and traditions of East Asia, South and Southeast Asia, and the Islamic world. It's great. It's great. And I, I like I like that notion of bringing um, just, oh, this is this type of art. This is this. It's like, no, all of it should just come to come. Can we can we bring it together? Can we just, you know, here, here? No. All right, cool. But I like that. That's that's what's happening. And, you know, I'm visiting going to visit very soon. Uh, it's just it's been a crazy couple of weeks. Um, but 
I wanted to get a sense from you, like you were touching on it earlier, like as far as coming up with and, and, and working on this exhibition, like being co-curator cur- um, co- here. Um, talk about like the experience of bringing together and shaping the narrative for, for this exhibit. Mm-hmm. Well, so there were, there were actually three curators working on uh, this installation. Myself, um, Ani Prozer, who is the senior curator of Asian art at the Walters, and also Ashley Dimmig. She was the former Wheeler Mellon Fellow in Islamic art. Um, she has left us now, and she is now a director of a gallery at um, University of Wisconsin Whitewater. But uh, during her time here, all three of us worked together on this installation. And, you know, so three curators, the potential for a conflict is very high, you know, with three different perspectives and three different egos. But actually, um, we were a great team, actually, like, great, like, I'm very happy the fact with the fact that we were a great team. And we were actually on the same page about our priorities for this installation. You know, we knew that we wanted to work with the strengths of the collection. Um, because the collection was formed by the Walters family, the um, father and son team. And so, and they're individuals, you know, they're humans. And so they have their own interests and their collection really reflect their individual taste. And so that means there are some stories that we can't tell from beginning to end, you know, we can't get 5,000 years worth of history from the collection. And so we had to work with our strengths. Um, But we also wanted to uplift underrepresented voices and perspectives. And so um, we did that through, we had a a few different strategies um, to do so. And then finally, we wanted to sort of like highlight these historical connections when possible. And that was one of the main reasons why we wanted Asian art and Islamic art to be together in one space, because there was a long history of connections across this vast continent. And so that was, that was, you know, that was what we, that those were our goals. And like one of the first steps that any curator will have to do for any installation exhibition is to come up with the object list. And this was a massive undertaking. It took multiple years. And, you know, we had, we have 9,000 objects in our collection for covering Asian Islamic art. And you're only seeing like 500 in the galleries. Right. And so the first thing we had to do was to decide to, you know, the first round, we managed to get, I think, a thousand objects on the list out of 9,000. So, you know, the first round was like a gut check. You just go through images. You're like, yes no, yes, no, sort of like, you know, just working off of our own gut, but also, you know, from our training and education and knowledge. And then the second, the subsequent rounds was to refine, just keep refining the list until we got down to about 500. And you do that refinement by, you know, going to, going into storage to look at the objects that we don't have photos for, because you can't say yes or no until you know what it actually looks like. Um, so that's one round. And then another round would be, okay, you have a smaller list now and you know what every one of them looks like and they're in good condition, whatever. So now it's like, what stories can we, what stories do these objects tell us? So sometimes you get a good group that 
automatically there was an organic story that emerged and like, oh, perfect, that group stays. But then you have other objects that, you know, no matter how hard you try, you just can't, they just don't fit mm -hmm. anywhere. They don't fit in the multiple ways that you're hoping or that the other objects are telling you it needs to be. Yeah. And so those are the objects that eventually you got to cut. And, you know, we were cutting objects up until like the last week of install. Don't tell anybody that, but. <laughs> no one listens to this. <laughs> but, it, but it's normal. Actually, it's quite normal. Well, I, I want to interject real quick because I, I, I like having those sort of unexpected like parallels immediately reminded me of in, in a, a, like a film editor. It's like, mm. yeah, if we had to trim this out, the movie was two hours. We got it down to 90 minutes. We were uh, we were editing to the day of, you know, <laughs> but but I I think it's something very very interesting in trying to balance like, um, you know, this is a really cool like item. This was a really cool object. This was a really cool scene when you're kind of trimming down from a large number from I think you you said nine thousand right mm -hmm. to five hundred. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that is a large drop and. Um, I look at it now in, in doing this as I kind of made that comparison to, to curating in, in this. Um, there are folks that will reach out and it's like, I don't know if that fits right now I, for, for, for these reasons and having sort of a, a, a rubric there. So in, in looking back, were there any sort of like challenges where those, those sort of egos came back and forth? It's like you can work together great, but it wasn't one of those like, I'm married to this item. I love this object right here. <laughs> Was it one of those instances or any object for you that really sticks out that you're like, that is the best piece? <laughs> <laughs> well, I have to say that the biggest challenges were actually kind of almost out of our control. <laughs> and, you know, over the past four years, I think everybody would agree the pandemic was the biggest challenge, the most unexpected and so, you know, that disrupted, you know, the fabric of just our lives, daily lives in general. But that certainly for this project, you know, it not only delayed the opening, but, you know, it delayed, it, it really put a roadblock on those initial stages whereby we had to like go into storage to view the objects in person. And so, you know, it took us a while, like everybody else, um, before we were able to work up a system where individually we, you know, we reserve time by ourselves in storage to view, you know, a hundred objects. And then next week we'll do that again and again, et cetera. So that was a challenge that was unexpected, totally out of our hands. Um, and sort of like related to the pandemic and people's shifting priorities because of it, that also partly um, forced us to deal with the challenge of having significant turnover in staffing in several departments across the museum that we work with in order to, you know, an installation like this takes the entire museum, all the teams to work together to make it happen. And so when we have, you know, not enough staffing to help us with the project, that was a major challenge. I mean, like ultimately, for example, we ended up working with three designers, three different designers on this work, on this um, installation. And one, and basically the most important way that we overcame that challenge was to give each other grace. I mean, like, I think grace and compassion. Yeah, I think um, 
I think understanding that, like in in doing this, because um, this is sort of the connection point that I I have, and this is the medium in which we're, you know, I, I find like when you're working with different folks, you have like a calendar, they have a calendar. Mm-hmm. And I think a few of the different byproducts that have come out of the the pandemic, maybe culturally speaking, is that, you know, folks had that moment of reset, but then sort of like the way that the engine that is this country and the world works is go, go, go. We don't have time for, for this. And I think it's that much more important when you're having sort of these person to person interactions, you know, whether it's working with that sort of whole museum staff or, you know, even in instances where you don't want to say a graduation, because I know it's commencement season for a lot of schools, right? And it's a lot of times all hands on deck and you you want to make sure that, you know, you're giving folks sort of that space and acknowledging that anything can happen. Yeah. You know, like COVID is still very real for sake of argument and mm-hmm. all these other things can pop up that can delay something. So giving folks sort of that grace and recognize that, we learned something about these pivots yeah. <laughs> they to consistently pivot. Yeah. And it was giving, it was also through little zoom boxes, even it wasn't even in that, like giving each other grace person in person. It was giving each other grace and being compassionate via small boxes on our screen. It was, it was wild. <laughs> the the compassion emoji in the zoom. Yeah. <laughs> Prayers up, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But also another major challenge that was definitely unexpected, well, I can't say unexpected, but definitely out of much of our control from the very beginning was, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement and then the calls for social justice and also sort of do, you know, related to that was like this lens on museums in general, sort of like make, forcing us to really look inward and ask ourselves to reconsider like what have we been doing you yeah. know and so the you know like we were i can i can definitely say we were one of the slower museums to um go public with our support but we were thoughtful in our slowness that was one of the reasons why we were slow but you know to be you know sometimes i feel like i'm mid-career as a curator but you know it was in the end i definitely think it was fantastic for the museum field to have been forced culturally to consider our past and where we're headed and so but that you know for the day-to-day what what how it affects me as a curator day-to-day it was more like man, what, you know, what stories do we want to tell with our historical artworks? You know, what voices do we want to uplift? And so it was a fundamental shift as well in, you know, five years ago, these artworks were presented a certain way. Five years later, no, they're not. They are keeping up with the times. They need to keep up with the times. That's huge. And, you know, I, I, I think in living through it and recognizing in it and, and being of a certain age, I'm from the 80s as well. Uh, huh? I, I think it it gives us sort of like a context and a sort of an understanding of what's happening around us and being able to to read through it. Um, you know, I, I did an interview that unfortunately I couldn't have used because it's just the audio quality wasn't great. 
but it was sort of the beginning of I, I think here some of one of the earlier stories about sort of the Asian hate like mm. nonsense. I'll put it. Um, I was like, isn't it like like Chinese New Year? I was literally just thinking yeah. the person like pinged me. It's like this is happening, and the person I was interviewing the Chinese. It, it was very, it was it's just really weird like time. And I even look at you know I'm a six foot four black man from Baltimore. You know, it's just the reality of the situation. So that's me. It's baked into who I'm interested in talking to and what I might find interesting. It's my perspective. It's my sensibilities, right? So I, I remember speaking about a few different things, using the sort of social media platform and kind of like who I might be interested in talking to and so on. Some of the DMs, you know, you're only talking to these types of artists. You're only talking to this type of artist. And I was like, talk to everyone and here's examples. But since we're doing this <laughs> and, you know, we we sort of have this this habit. And I think having that moment to wait, now some people may say it's too slow and so on. But I think being thoughtful, it's a word that people throw around a lot. Mm, they don't know. They don't know. They're saying thoughtful and intentional. They don't know what they mean. Sometimes it's not instantaneous. And I think when you're taking the time to put in care, it's not in action. It's, you know, like, what do we think about this? What is the message? How do we get this right? You know, as far as how are we behaving, how what it would start messaging and so on, because there are a lot of places, I think, what's the, what's the terminology? You, you can't quite put the genie back in the bottle. Mm -hmm. So if you say something that's wrong, tone deaf, that just doesn't match, you're going to get called out on it. So being able to be thoughtful and mindful of, what is the approach and are we on the same page across an institution, culturally, what have you? I think that's that's where that time and that work has to go in. Yeah. So let's see. I got two more real questions. Mm -hmm. Then I got those aforementioned rapid fire questions that you won't escape. You won't escape. <laughs> no one escapes them. Uh, so we, 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 we love the parties. We love seeing that the sort of the, the work going up and all of that, you know, the, the objects and all of the, the, the great effort that's being put in on how an exhibition is laid out and all of the thinking and the, just the process overall. It's, thus far, what would you say is like one of the most rewarding uh, moments or achievements that you've experienced as a curator or as a scholar? Because, you know, that's just another thing. I may have saw some writing in there, you know, I was going <laughs> deep dive. So Talk a little bit about that. Sure. Um, I'd say one of the first experiences, one of my first proud moments was um, when I first started out. So right after grad school, I uh, went to the Asian Art Museum in San Francisco and I worked as the curatorial assistant of Chinese art. Now, curatorial assistant is sort of like the bottom of the totem pole. You know, this is when you get your foot in the door in the field. And so um, living in San Francisco at that time as a curatorial assistant, I had to work a second job, you know, to make ends meet because it's San Francisco. And so I uh, worked as a server at a sports bar, a local sports bar, um, and as my second job. So when I published my first article, my first um, article in Orientations Magazine, this um, art trade publication, I was so proud and my um, manager at the sports bar was also very proud of me. And so he scanned um, the pages of the article and he emailed it to headquarters, you know, to sort of like say, hey, look what our, you know, employees are doing, you know. So that was very, you know, I, I loved that. I was like, oh, a little boost of confidence, you know, from all sides. That's really cool. 
So that was my first really proud moment as, you know, someone as an art scholar. Um, in the spring of 2011, I was selected to um, be part of a trip to Japan that it was supported by the Japan Foundation. And this trip was basically a group of um, curators, art curators, and specifically also Asian art curators who um, were interested in also working with you know contemporary art and or contemporary living artists and so they took us to Japan and you know it was the the trip was so eye-opening because not only was I able to just be exposed to you know the living thriving culture of Japan and go to all the wonderful art museums and cultural heritage sites but because the emphasis was also on contemporary art you know, I was also got to just experience sort of like from the Japanese point of view, what they found fascinating in in the contemporary art world. And so, but this was also during the time when the earthquake happened with the nuclear meltdown. And so on that personal level, it was you know, I made great friends with the group of people that I was with because you 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 know, you went through that traumatic experience together and you really do remain close after that. But that was a transformative trip, like professionally and personally. That's, that's, that's wonderful um, to to have that experience and um, be able to take in the culture. I think when I do the majority of my interviews, Baltimore based with Baltimore folks or what have you. And when I do sort of the truth in this art beyond, I make it a point to go to the place, you know, Mm -hmm. It, it's something like the whole sports thing said sports bar earlier. So the whole sports thing is like, oh, this is an away, an away game, I guess. And <laughs> I'll do it that way. And I'll, I'll share this. I have a I have a buddy um, from the, what is it? Japan American Society in Philadelphia. And um, I was just like, kind of like having, having uh, kind of shared with him, I think off mic, this sort of experience I had a couple years back, I called it my, my weird long, like kind of Japanese weekend where one of my buddies and I, we flew um, from from Baltimore to um, to Los Angeles for the Anime Expo was happening, which was a it was a backup thing for us because mm-hmm. we were there, and I put it this way, to see sweaty Japanese men wrestle. We were there for Jap- uh, Japan uh, New Japan Pro Wrestling, and it was their first show in their forty five year history in the U S. So I was like, yeah, we got to go. So we go there and then it's like, eh, let's check out, you know, little Tokyo in LA. We started just doing all <laughs> of these different things and it was this through line. And um, the only thing that was not on point and it's just maybe poor choosing. I'm a, I'm a bit of a sushi snob and I just did not have good sushi there. That was the only uh-huh. thing about it, but it was just like being around it. And I wish that and this is a couple of years ago, but I wish that I had sort of the background and doing all of these interviews to go there um, and relive that experience a little bit. Um, the Anime Expo, I sat there, me and my buddy sat there with a group. Um, they were uh, Japanese photographers that were there. And I was like, we're here with the like real people. When I uh-huh. like the fanboys, we're here hanging out with the photographers. We're getting the whole different vibe. Yeah. Like, hey, what do you find interesting about this whole whole thing? So that was a really cool experience. Awesome. Just the, the culture thing for me. You know? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Definitely. When you get the opportunity um, to be there in person and um, just absorb, soak up the culture, and 
you know, I've had the fortunate opportunity to not only go to Japan, but I've also um, lived and worked in China as well. And so the, so I have not been to Korea. That's on my bucket list. Professionally speaking, I need to go to Korea sometime in my lifetime. <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm slightly jealous. That's the thing. I'm not jealous when it comes to the flight component. Like mm -hmm. me and my me and my partner, we joke about it um, because she's like, I can just cross my legs and go to sleep on a plane. I was like, you're fine. <laughs> I was like that 18 hour flight to from here to Japan. I was like, I am six four. It's not going to work out. I was yeah. like, everything is small, right? I was like, what are we doing? <laughs> so yeah. this this is the last question I have, and this is oh, but first I have to say yeah, I would be remiss if I didn't say that. Installing across Asia was is the most recent um, moment of pride for me as a curator, because I don't know if you know, but it is actually relatively rare for any curator to get the opportunity to be able to re-envision and reinstall an entire collection. Some curators go a whole career without having had that opportunity. So I am very grateful that I got to work with like two great colleagues and a great team to do that. Thank you. That's that is a definitely a feather in the cap and a milestone. Mm -hmm. So so this is the um the sort of last real question here and this is more around the sort of framing of like uh advice you mentioned mid career, right? So um what advice would you give to aspiring curators of all types, art and so yeah. on because you know here. But <laughs> what, what advice would you you give as far as like, you know, approaching curation, how to just like you know progress in that 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 lane if you will uh i think number one is be curious because you know 50 percent of my daily work is thinking about the artworks doing research on the artworks and you know even though my education and training was specifically on chinese art most curators have to oversee all of Asian art, for example. And so, you know, that's a tall order. And so you have to be, you have to be curious to be able to, you know, get that daily dose of, you know, just excitement and passion. Um, otherwise, it's just going to be an overwhelming task for your entire career kind of thing. Um, another advice would be to seek fellowship and collaborations not only you know across the museum but also across within the field because you know for a long time curators have had this um perception that we work in our ivory tower you know isolated that's no longer the case you know work is in order to make our history especially our historical collection relevant to new audiences like we need we need our colleagues' perspective. They're there on the floor, you know, they're there engaging with visitors. They have more of a pulse on what is important now to our visitors. And so um, fellowship and collaboration is key. Um, be adaptable. Who knew the pandemic was going to happen kind of thing, you know? And it always happens. There's always um, challenges and roadblocks, always in any project. And then finally, through perfectionism because <laughs> you got to make deadlines as you said every team member has their own deadlines has their own list of deadlines and you got to learn as a curator to know when good is good enough you have a deadline this is good enough for what we want to achieve and you know 
um, you still respect what you produce, it's good enough, move on. And that's how projects get finished. That's how the team accomplishes together. Thank you. You, you uh, See, I was looking for one. You gave us four of them. I mean, uh, that's overachieving. I, I love it. <laughs> Speaking of four, I might have five, but I want to hit you with these rapid fire questions. Um, as I tell everyone, don't overthink them. They're they're goofy questions, but they're, they're a little bit about you. It takes us behind the curtain. You know, so here's the first one. Uh, what is your go to comfort food? <laughs> Oh, it is um, instant ramen. I have to say, any particular flavor? Um, specifically, the brand Top Ramen beef flavor. See, I, I like that. I like that. See, <laughs> see, when we're having the ramen conversation, right? It's like which flavor? It's like the high school conversation here. Which high school did you go to? Just so we, <laughs> just so we have a sense. I was shrimp for a long time. Oh no, no, too, too light. You know, not not enough punch, but also the way that I make instant ramen, I don't I don't use the broth. So I cook the the noodles and then I strain it and then I put the seasoning packet, soy sauce, um, sriracha, peanut oil, fried garlic and lime juice. You mix it all up and it's basically like, um, you know, brothless ramen. That is that's the next level right there. Yes. I mean, when you, yes. you when you mentioned the Siraj and you mentioned the Lasa, like, oh, that's in my lane now because <laughs> come to my place, it's just like you have curry, you have all of those items. It's like, are you just making Thai food? Maybe. Don't worry about it. <laughs> uh, so let's see. That uh, combination of sauces. 100%. So uh, let's see. Beach or mountains? What is your preference? Beach. Everybody who knows me knows I am a beach bum. I want to retire in in the shack on the beach. Love it. Cats or dogs? Oh, I've always been a cat person, even though my family loves dogs. But I'm a cat person. I love that cats, they know they don't seek your attention. It's like they're just aloof. So like when I feel like I need comfort. You got to chase the cat. There's something satisfying about chasing a cat so that they can give you hugs, you know? This is, this is true. This is true. Yeah, it's a little bit of both. But I've always in my solo situations always had cats. Mm -hmm. um, dogs are goofy. I mean, I like them. They're <laughs> super goofy. It's just like, here, aren't you asshole? Uh, so, um, so these are the last two. Um, do you collect? Is there anything in your, your, your home, your personal space that you collect? I collect beautiful, empty journals. <laughs> you know, I love I love a beautiful cover. If it feels great in my hands, oh, I got to have it. But I have so many that in my lifetime, I will never be able to fill all the pages of my journal collection, which is fine. But I've accepted that. But yes, I collect journals. I've been trying to get better about the uh, the books because on occasion I'll interview someone and they'll send me like, this is a book I really like. So um, so I'm very, you know, uh, I'm very cautious on which books I bring into my space. But there was one that I finished the audio book for that I also have the uh, like the tangible book. Mm -hmm. It's the um, Ganbate book <laughs> about the uh, basically like Japanese perseverance. And yeah. 
I was like, hold on. I broke my rule. I have both of these. I have it digitally and tangibly. And I've read read it both ways. I was like, this is great. This book must mean a lot to me. <laughs> so this is the last one. This is the last one. We we talked about flowers earlier. Do you have a favorite flower and what is it if so? Oh, I do. I love my favorite flower would be the gardenia because I feel like that has the best fragrance of all other flowers that I've smelled. So a hot flower take there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes. Challenge me. I'll challenge anyone. It has the best fragrance. And, and, and I guess this is the B to it. Like in, in terms of like sort of the history and the art historian component to it, what is generally like some of the, the themes that come up with that relationship to like Asian art and flowers? Well, I feel like I've been studying this topic for so long now that there are some, I feel like there's some universal themes that pop up always. By now, I feel like I question, is it a human instinct to like bestow upon natural things such as flowers with meaning? Sort of like, does that satisfy some innate desire in us to be able to look at a gorgeous flower that naturally grows without our human intervention? Like, oh, it must mean something special. And so I will bestow upon it a special meaning and symbol. You can find that across all, you know, many, many cultures have such a language of flowers or this impetus to understand the natural world in this way. And that's where I currently stand. That's my opinion on that. Thank you for sharing that. And um, that is it for today's conversation. Um, but one, I want to really thank you for, for making the time and coming on this podcast yet again. And I want to invite and encourage you to take these, these final moments here to share anything, plug uh, the ex exhibition, plug anything you want to plug. The floor is yours. Oh, well, thank you. I do personally invite all of our listeners, if you can, please come to um, the galleries of across Asia at the Walters Art Museum. If this was a multi-year project. We definitely poured our heart into um, this installation. And we really do hope that each of the artworks speak to you individually in some way. Thank you. And um, do you, you want to share the website or anything along those lines, just if folks want to Oh, yes. Um, please visit us at www.thewalters.org. And you can find all of your information for your future visit there on that website. And there you have it, folks. I want to again thank Donnie Chan for coming on to the podcast. And I'm Rob Lee saying that there's art and culture in and around your neighborhood. You've just got to look for it. Mm -hmm.